You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. This episode was recorded outside the studio, live on location. So, Mr. Malinowski. Yes, sir. (laughs) uh, Thanks for joining us today. Um, There's so many things you do, and and part of uh, the podcast is kind of breaking labels down. Um, this grew out of a TEDx talk that I gave a couple of years ago about you know how labels are for other people. And if you let labels define you, that you're an accountant or you're um, you know, you're a blood or a crip or you know, whatever it is. I'm both. Uh, you're both. <clears throat> I, I try to wear white wherever I go <laughs> so I stay out of danger. Um, that um, they really can define you and part of the thing of the creative world is defining yourself and sort of being true to what you do. And when I was writing your intro, I wasn't even sure what to put first filmmaker, you know, composer, band leader, filmmaker, you know, how would you, I guess to introduce yourself to people who are not familiar with your work, um, how would you describe, how would you introduce yourself to someone if, if you had to pick one or two things? You know, I always, <clears throat> I always go to filmmaker. I think I start with filmmaker because that came about, the interest in filmmaking came about a little later on in my life. <clears throat> and I, I think I identify more with being a filmmaker than I do uh, someone who is a lover of music. I mean, I still am a lover of music and definitely a musician through and through because I was born into it. My father was a musician and I teach music, but filmmaking, I'm more interested in filmmaking. So when I, the first thing I talk about in terms of aesthetics is filmmaking. Well, that's it. Well, it's interesting because I, that's how I met you was, you know, behind a mic stand playing guitar in front of the band and singing And singing. and, and, you know, Gesturing wildly at people and and, uh, and all of that. Well, I am a gesture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's a good picture of you pointing in a very accusatory uh, oh. way at the camera uh, on, on the web page. Um, and I really had no idea about the the film side of you until uh, you know our mutual friend said, "Oh, well, he, you know, he had made a film." And this, <clears> I think, at the time. They were referring to alms. Probably alms, you say. You yeah. say, which um, you made. When when was that project completed? I made that. It was released, I think, in 2007. I think we shot it in 2005. It was a 16-millimeter experimental film, 33 minutes long. It was a short subject, and it was very odd. It was odd as hell. <laughs> yeah. Even <laughs> though I watch it, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure where it came from. Okay. Yeah. So how long... W- from a process standpoint, and, and I, I do know that people that listen to the podcast are um, are also involved in creative industries. So we have filmmakers on, and we see a lot of hits from people that I know are in that business, whether they're 
sort of dilettantes that are doing it on the side or they're amateurs or they're pros, you know, in terms of process, um, to make that, to make alms, conceiving it, writing it and, and actually getting it produced, you know, how long of a period of time did that take? Well, Alms, you say, started as a short script called Who Went Out. And Who Went Out was... My father had died a few years prior, and I wanted to write something to honor him. So I wrote this experimental kind of film that dealt with vignettes starring a character that would play my father and how much I missed him and the oddness of my dad. And that was fine, but it made... Uh, almost no sense, you know, to, to, to an onlooker. So I thought it'd be a little too difficult to make. So I was watching a film, a short film called, I think it's called All My Life. I can't remember the name of the filmmaker, but it's an experimental film from the sixties. And I think it's about 60 seconds long. And it's the shot of a, a beach and a camera's kind of perched on top of a dune. And it's looking out over a white picket fence it's looking out over the ocean, but there's a white picket fence uh, and with kind of lilacs or something on it in frame. And then that pans up to the sky, and it's about a 60-second film. And I thought, man, that's so simple. I'll write something simple. And I started to write this film called Alms, You Say, which got very complicated and ended up being 33 pages. But it was based on whatever I felt when I was watching the film. I think Again, I think it's called All My Life. Um and it also was a film loosely based on my father, but it was more or less the story of a man who was in a kind of a a disintegrating relationship with a woman, and he he thinks that his father's spirit is taking over uh, or taking his place in the relationship. That's essentially what almost you say is, but there's so much more to it than that. It's very colorful and. How would so so the, the yeah. length of time rather so the script took about to decide on the script it took me about uh, maybe six months okay and then um, hired crew got some money together via friends my friend Bill Ackerman chipped in uh, probably my sister Terry Minucci and um, a lot of credit cards I know that sounds like a cliche but that's what I used and mm-hmm. shooting on film film's very expensive so. Right. Um, we shot over the course of 10 days in Landenburg, Pennsylvania and in, in uh, Lewis Beach or Rehoboth, no, Lewis Beach, Delaware. And uh, after that, I sat on the footage. I had about 10 cans of film and a friend of mine, a friend of a friend knew an editor named Ben Witten in New York City and I would go to Ben Witten's place called Madhouse. It's a commercial editing house and that took place over the course of one year, we edited this film because I didn't have any money to do it any other way. Right. And he did it pretty much for free after hours. So I'd have to go to Manhattan, you know, one day a week and we'd spend like four hours editing. And then I'd come back to home and have to wait for another week to edit right. my film. And But it was great. I mean, he I learned a lot about editing when I was up there with him. And uh, then I did the music at a friend's house, my friend Mike Martin and... Just put the music onto the film, and and did so. Did you write the soundtrack for Alms also? Oh yeah, okay, I did. And uh, also, I want to say that somebody else cleaned up the sound. A guy named John Baker, um, who works in Philly at a production house in Philly. 
actually used John also for Yesertitis Golden Dark Sir, but it probably took about two years to finish that film. Now, one of the things uh, I had Stephanie Gardner on earlier in one of the earlier episodes, and she was kind of describing the way that she had her sound designed. It was all by internet where you know she got the finished you know video piece of the film. Mm-hmm. I know that's a terrible way to describe it. No, but, no. but the the visual elements were done, and then she could Dropbox those to a sound designer. I think her guy was in like Finland or, or someplace remote. I'm not sure how they knew each other. And then he could design, uh, you know, soundscapes for, for her and Dropbox it back. Um, how are you, how is that in, has that kind of thing impacted what you do uh, at all? I know you're, you know, not for, not, not yet. Uh, because even with yes, you're tied, after all of the sound, a lot of my editing or my picture editing was done by a guy named Colby Bartin, and Colby Bartin also did, um, also did some of the sound editing as we went along. He was like the handyman of the piece, mm-hmm. and then I cleaned some of that sound up with Rich Dagnars, um, another uh, musician in the area who has this great studio called Dasa Studios in Pike Creek Valley, and then. Finally, we had to go to, I think it's Philly Post, Philadelphia Post, Philly Post with John Baker and Scott Waz, and they cleaned it up. And that was actually, and, and lined things up a little better. And that probably took, I think I had to go there for about a week to 10 days to clean up the sound. And that was all in a row. That was, you know, consecutively for 10 days, I would have to go to clean it up. Much better than spacing it out over, oh, yeah. over a year with uh, field trips up to New York. Yeah. And John, John, you know, flew in atmosphere and different things and just um, made it sound like a professional film and mastered it for us. But the film right. was two hours and five minutes long, so, and it had to be taken care of. I, I, I you know, as a filmmaker, I never, I love sound in films, but I never, I kind of took it for granted for years okay. until I discovered, I, I watched a lot of uh, filmmakers or films that were made by kind of amateurish filmmakers and the sound was awful, you know, from cut to cut. And I thought, I will never have that. What do I have to do to get perfect sound? And, right. and that's actually Ben Witten, I think, referred me to John Baker at Philadelphia Post or Philly Post. Now we're, we're kind of, Fast forwarding a bit, um, so the the first. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, Alms, you say was your first major film project? Could we say it? Back? Yeah, I would say so. And then, um, so that came out in 2012. Uh, no, that was 2007. 2007. Yeah. And uh, we're sort of jumping forward to present day. Uh, your most recent film is called Yes. Your tide is cold and dark, sir. Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. Also with a comma. You're a big fan of the comma. Sure. In the period. In the film title. In the period within the quotes. (laughs) We're not screwing around here. No. Hey, listen. We want punctuation. I went to Catholic school. I'm afraid of getting slapped. All right. So let's let's talk about um, this film because in in terms of, of scope, uh, in terms of, you know, complexity and not just, you know, thematically and uh, subject matter, but also in terms of the production, the budget, the fundraising that needed to happen. This was an order of magnitude 
much larger than than your first work. Oh, yeah, so, very much so. Um, so let's maybe focus on that a little bit. And in the show notes, we'll have um, we'll we'll embed the trailer, uh, which everybody should see, and then a way to. Uh, one. How does one acquire the film on Amazon? You can get it on Amazon right now. Is where where it's available. It's okay. uh, you can stream it on Amazon or you can order the DVD. Uh, order the DVD and and yeah, get the and, DVD. And support, it's fun to have. It's fun to have the box. Yes, yeah, support. Uh, and part of this is is helping to support uh, good work. So for God's sakes, buy the DVD and uh, and get on, and get on that with your people. Um, <laughs> Tell us a little bit, like a brief synopsis of of the plot and what what we're walking into as as we. Okay, uh, yes, your Titus Conan Darkster is about uh, an aging music instructor, guitar instructor, who has kind of a rogue way about him, who disappears with three of his teenage pupils into the sand dunes of Cape Henlope in Delaware. And his estranged son, Cliff, whom I play in the film, um, comes down to this town, Cape Henlopen, which happens to be his hometown, to inadvertently look for his father. He he pretends to really have no interest in finding his father, but uh, and along the way uh, encounters three people who have some kind of a relate had some kind of a relationship with his father, some kind of connection to his father, and in. Uh, in a nutshell, kind of learns more about himself in that way and connects with a, a distant lover or lost love. What, now, when you say inadvertently searches for his father, is that uh, inadvertent to third to outsiders, or does he go? Does does Cliff go to Cape Henlopen, really intending to find? his dad, but Pretty to much. sort of play it off with other people exactly. that, there you well, go. I'm not really here to do that. Exactly. But, but in his heart, he's, he's very really... much connected to his dad. Okay. Yeah. Misses his father, but they haven't talked in years. So, and, and the, the people that the, that the main character meets along the way, generally, like who are those characters? What role did they play with the father's character in their pasts? Uh, let's see. One of them was his father's best friend, a man named Jack, played by Greg Tagani. Uh, Greg Tagani and I are working on a new film project now called The Last Time I Saw You Blessed. Uh, so Greg plays Jack, my father's best friend. And then Amy Cassida played the role of uh, JC, and she's one of my father's mistresses. Okay. Yeah, gets around quite a bit in this. And at the um, time, as as uh, we don't want to give away too much of the plot, but Cliff is discovering things he did not know. Yes, about his about dad, his father, as yeah. he's going on this journey. Mm-hmm. Some good, some not so good. You got it. Okay. Yeah. Another character is Rick Tullivan, played by um, a Chicago actor named Ted LeBlanc. And Rick uh, happens to be the former husband of one of my father's mistresses, and he's not real fond of my dad. Um, and I run into him in a, in a, in a negative sense. We, we run into one another, or he runs into me. Um, and then there's one more character. Um, well, actually, it's more or less related to my mother, um, a nurse played by um, Gene Brooks. I know. I have the credits right in front of me. Gene Brooks, one of my favorite characters in the film, is this this nurse named Meryl. And I loved working with Gene. I love working with everyone. But uh, 
So she's more or less affiliated with uh, my mother who happened to be, uh, happened to die in the town. And this was her hospice nurse. And we connect in some way while we're down there. My character, Cliff, connects with Meryl. Okay. There's a lot of people to keep track of. There's a lot. I haven't seen the film in a while, so I feel like I'm just stammering. Did you, now, the one, one of the many things that interests me um, about what you do is, you know, not only are you conceiving of the story, uh, directing the film and getting it produced, but you're also writing the soundtrack right. and not... You know, this is not a thing where you're writing material, putting it into like Finale or Sibelius, one of these you know music notation s- software packages, and then you have a bunch of artificial instruments cranking the music out. This is a rock band mm-hmm. behind this entire film. Um, I actually just made a pseudo air guitar pose. I apologize. Yeah, I'm watching it right now. I don't know why that's happening. You look um, actually you you moved into Ace Freely. I have a, I, my my fingers are way too short to play guitar. I've learned <laughs> uh, the piano, guitar, not my thing. Drums, yes, but that's about where it ends. Um, so you've you know written a full length CD or, or uh, thirteen songs that your band, The Collingwood. Performs and and I've seen you know you guys perform them live. So, what's coming first is the, the soundtrack is following the script. The script's done first, and then the sound like yeah. The script. Or do you have song ideas that have been floating around that you can marry to certain aspects of the story? How how does that? Work? When I was writing the script, there were bands that I wanted on the soundtrack, and the. As we built the budget for the film and started hiring crew and started hiring cast, there were 56 people in this film and 17 crew. Uh, and, and figuring out lodging expenses and food expenses, it just seemed like it'd be almost kind of prohibitively expensive to 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 hire hire out people to to well utilize songs that have are now in music libraries and head Hit licensing and, yeah. yeah and it's and plus you have to re re up the licensing every year and that's just it wasn't going to happen yeah. so and, and there's some of the bands were like Firefall I love that the band Firefall and the Twilight Singers and Joan Baez also so it wasn't happening right well it's, it's and it's with you know, with the way that a budget can start kind of like turning into an avalanche mm-hmm. of this licensing fee, hotels for, you know, if you have to buy 25 hotel room nights or whatever it is for the for the crew or people that are coming in, um, before you know what happened, uh, five or ten grand goes out the window and you haven't even sh- shot anything. Oh, yeah. Yet. Yeah, lodging, actually. I think lodging and food ate up. And this is not a ton of money, but it is for, for something as small as we did. But uh, it was like $30,000 or $35,000 eaten up by lodging and food. What was the, um, to like go inside baseball a little bit. So the the budget for Yes, Your Tide was how much? 160000 is what it ended up being. Okay. Now, so. and I think a lot of people that aren't in the business, as we say, uh, that are just reading like the Hollywood Reporter or you know, variety or something you see on Facebook where, you know, the budget for Avengers is 200 million and 50 million for this. Like in the real world where, or I think 
by and large independent film, $160,000 is a ton of money. And it's not, it's, it's tough to raise sure. 10 or 20 or 30. Uh-huh. Um, how did, how does one, I mean, do you crowdfund? Do you use Indiegogo? Do you, what, what do you do to, it's, uh, it started with feed the muse. Uh, feed the muse is an online funding site. Uh, my friend Joanna, uh, Joanna Jackson had, uh, kind of set me on a path to, to trying that. And I tried it and I raised about $3,500 and I knew at first I thought this film was going to cost maybe $75,000. You know, we were going to try to do it micro budget, right. a lot of locations. Uh, I like to use a lot of locations when I shoot and I think they're like 25, 26 in this. Um, and it, I just couldn't figure out how to do it that way, you know, how to get that much money in the amount of time that I needed. So my mother had turned me on to an entrepreneur who my family knew named Alan Burkhart. And Alan Burkhart and I had between three and six meetings. We can't agree on how many it was. <laughs> He'll tell you six. I thought it was three. You were in uh, meetings that you didn't even know they were uh, exactly. meetings. Yeah. Well, it was on the, on the deck of Klondike Kate's in Newark, which Alan owns, um, and, you know, he just, he believed, he didn't even read the script when he agreed to, to, to finance it, which I thought was really awesome of him to just believe in the fact that right. I had a lot of fire behind this and I was going to get the job done. Um, and then, you know, on a handshake, he agreed to finance it with the stipulation that he be the only producer, which I understand, you know, he didn't want anyone else right tangled up in it. And that's so, for me, it happened that simply, which is pretty cool. That's uh, a, a miracle. Yeah, I, I mean, it, re- it really is. I can't you know? say I didn't get yelled at from time to time. <laughs> had my ass handed to me, and I needed to. So he kept me in line. It was cool. And, and in terms of process, um, you know, what amount of, I don't want to say control, but, you know, feedback were you giving your producer in terms of, where the dollars were going, how they're being dispersed. How did all that work in a nutshell? Uh, I had to come up with a business plan for him and show him exactly where all of the monies would be spent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then uh, after I started to break down the script, I hired a uh, first assistant director um, named Chris Black. And Chris really helped me to organize. Um, And both he and I would kind of report back to Alan throughout the the shoot um, and just tell him what was going on or if I needed more money or which I did inevitably. Right. So, you know, have to go, go to him and ask for more. Um, as far as creatively, he didn't get in my way at all. And he promised me he would not. And he was, he was dead on with that, man. He did not get in my way at all. That was my next question. Yeah. Like, was there any, uh... no, because he knew, you know, uh, yes, your tide is definitely a postmodern construct. I mean, the narrative is somewhat skewed and the audience definitely has to think about what they see. And it's made with an, an ounce or two of ambiguity, um, narratively speaking. So he understood that it was going to be an odd film. Um, and, but he was okay with it, you know, and that was cool. I mean, you can't ask for anything more than that. And I, I will always be thankful to Alan Burkhart for this. So I, yeah. yep. Uh, no doubt about that. I mean, without, um, without patrons, things like this just don't happen. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of in another, um, formulation of that, uh, you know, I'll run into, you know, young drummers or young musicians that maybe are were in the same space in terms of playing the same venues or 
or something and um, hearing people talk about, well, I want to, you know, I want to get as good as I can and, you know, I want to practice as much as I can, which is admirable and everybody should. Um, but I tell people, you know, being good is not close to enough no, to, not. to make anything happen. You have to be technically sound at whatever it is you're doing, whether it's painting, you know, sculpture or guitar or whatever. And you need to create the conditions for, for art to happen, I guess is how I would, sure. how I would say it. So without a producer, there's no film without, no. without corporate sponsors, there's no music festivals. You yeah. know, it, it just doesn't happen by itself. Um, and you know what you've, I think if you put it out there and you show, especially if you have a plan and you're doing something unique and you're definitely kind of sticking to your proverbial guns creatively and knowing that you're going to go through a little bit of hell because making a film, like Bob Stewart, the, uh, actually who starred in the film and also shot one of the stars of the film who also uh, was the cinematographer, a longtime friend of mine for Yes, You're Tied, uh, he always says making a film, he was saying, I don't know if he was paraphrasing from somebody else, but it's like going to war, you know, and it is, it's like going to war. There's going to be problems. You're walking into to something and it's 30 days, you know, it's 30 days of it. There's very little downtime. Some of the days are 14 hours long, you know, and there's no backing out of it. You can't lose a day. And we didn't lose any days actually, which were cool. Now the, the 30 day schedule, did that include... You had already done your site selection. Oh, my God, yeah. I started scouting locations for the film a year out. Okay. And started writing letters to the Lewis, Delaware Chamber of Commerce. It was shot in Lewis, Delaware and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. So I did all of that um, and just met with the mayor, um, Mayor Ford at that time, uh, and a woman named Elaine Pease. And they were so helpful. And then Greg Faris um, was the mayor of Rehoboth Beach, who... Help me out. And they just gave me the go ahead. You know, it wasn't the city of Lewis was so helpful in that they didn't make me sign any permits. I was you know, going to, well, I was going to ask they you didn't about, give me any about, crap about it. Yeah. They were, they were welcoming of the production, you know, cause I, I'm completely enamored with Lewis. Like I'm in love with that town <laughs> and I couldn't say anything more about, yeah, I would like to right. die there. I'm fine with living there until I die. And yeah, even if it means living in a, a shrimp shack or something. I wouldn't eat the shrimp because I'm vegan. <laughs> but I, well, I, was, I wanted to ask you. I mean, it just from a distance, um, it's obvious how much Lewis and Rehoboth and and you know that section of Delaware, uh, how much it resonates with you, whether you're even articulating it or not, because of of, you know, stills from the video production or references to it in the music, sure. uh, the, the, the band's, you know, repertoire. Um, well, what is it about that region? Do you, what is that, that grabs you? Like you know, I, I started going down there in the nineties. My aunt and uncle owned a house there and they actually would move from house to house down there. I never really understood that. I don't even think they were flipping houses. I think they were just indecisive where my aunt was indecisive. <laughs> But when I started going to film school in Ithaca and Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York, I would come home for spring break and such, and I would end up just spending like five to seven days with them in Lewis. And we would rent films and just kind of hang out and drink coffee and stuff. And I, I think at that time, 
I, I needed some space in my head, and I always found it in Lewis. They would go to bed kind of early, and I would kind of venture out into the town because they lived within walking distance. And I don't know if I just felt most like myself when I was there. I know that's kind of an abstract concept. No, 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 no. I don't even no, know no, what no. it is. It almost feels like being in my bedroom as a child when my parents mm-hmm. were still together and actually getting along. So it was like a womb-like feeling about it. Uh, and I... I, I Walking around there some nights, I would go, boy, you know. That was actually on the short list for the for the uh, the town motto. What's that? Womb of <laughs> womb your childhood, you know. Womb of your childhood. Yeah. When Lewis, your parents were getting along. Yeah, Lewis, right. Delaware. <laughs> Only when your parents were getting along. All, so almost like the womb. Exactly. That would, that's. Uh, and, start printing the t-shirts now. We should. There was a New Year's Eve where I had the dog sit for them, a house sit for them, and I think it was I th- it was the year that Romeo and Juliet came out, the Baz Luhrmann film, the remake with Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. Really. Yep. And I remember that, or maybe a year after, I was there by myself, and I just I was hanging out with their dog Spooky, and I remember just kind of going up to the Great Dune where Alms You Say was shot, and actually parts of um, Yes You're Tide in Cape Ham Open State Park and I remember standing on that great dune going this was in the 90s saying I'm going to make a feature film here one day I'm going to make a feature film here one day so I don't know what that was about I don't know that's what my that father <laughs> chiming in it's knocking things from over. his watery grave um well and you've done it I mean what's I think that one thing that um I hope people that listen to the podcast start to get um, is there's a theme that runs through almost all of the episodes which is the amount of energy that it takes to bring a project to completion and do it well is so much more than people really understand oh yeah Um, you have to have some level of um, obsession with whatever you're involved in, uh, which not is not always a good thing no. in, in all phases of life, but in order to get an indie film made or to get a play staged or a record recorded, um, you really have to have tunnel vision and just keep grinding away at it for like within the case of yes, you're tied, um, total start to finish writing the script to, Releasing it to the world, you know, how long of a time period was I, that? It usually takes me about eight months to write a script. Uh, I know because the new script took me eight months exactly. And so eight months, then a couple of months of trying to find money various ways, mm-hmm. and then the funding. And I remember, I think it was June, I got the funding, the go ahead in June of 2011. And I had the option of starting in March of 2012 or starting in November of 2011. And I said, okay, in six months or five months, production is going to start. So I really had to hustle because that meant casting, crewing. The locations were set. That was cool. Right. But, you know, there's always issues 
as you go, and then finding lodging for everyone who's going to do the catering day-to-day, craft service, and everything else. Um, also, along with rehearsing actors and actresses. The cool thing about uh, Yeshertide was we had tons of rehearsal time. You know, I would, and all of the actors were amiable to it. They would come into town no matter where they were from, right? And we would spend. I mean, especially the kids, parents like uh, uh, Alexis Baroni was one of the. Uh, child actors and Evangeline Young and Shane Spencer and their parents would bring them for rehearsals you know and you know, sometimes really late at night and have to drive two hours home after which is fantastic so all of the rehearsal time had to be all of this had to be done within six months which is nuts it's what would be termed pre-production so what's the six month limitation comes from where uh, because well I was funded I got the go-ahead on the funding in June of 2011. Okay. So I said that I wanted to start production in November of 2011 rather than wait. And so I, that's why. Well, it was five months, I guess. Okay. So that's where the limitation came from. Like, I had to be ready by November. And then you call in your first assistant director. He helps you break down the script. I needed to make a shot list. I didn't storyboard for this film. I storyboarded everything in alms. But a shot list just proved to be faster for this. Right. Um, and then I hired the cinematographer. Bob Stewart comes down. We do camera tests and all that junk. Like, everything. And then... Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. And then a, a very forgiving fiance, Chrissy Tackett, who was also in the film <laughs> right. and who did rehearsals with me also and put up with the fact that I was absent for, you know, about a, an entire year. And the, uh, so, the, and well, and also the, um, one other thing in terms of not sort of like nuts and bolts, um, equipment rental and, oh, yeah. and deciding what, Tool, you know, you have to have the right tool for the sure. job. So, yeah. um, you know, how much energy was that? Something that you had overseen, or were you sort of with with your assistant director saying, like, you know, we're going to do this shot. It's going to be daylight. It's going to be a busy corner, and here's we kind of need this general list of stuff. You figure it out, and or are you down to? Every piece of gear that's on site, you were selecting. No, I, I wasn't there at all. I um, well, I shouldn't say at all because I sold out a, a rental house, Expressway Expressway Grips. But uh, a lot of the equipment, Bob Stewart handled all of the camera equipment, and then uh, got a fellow named Kevin, who's a gaffer um, and the lighting designer for the film, also known as Dylan Farnham. Um, he handled what we needed you know he would make the checklist and say this is what we need to get and probably you know and again you have to watch how much you spend so there's limitations right. which kind of sucks you know when you could because it's visual is the most important part of film to me sure. and then we have and then our we had a sound guy named justin and justin Valls, uh and he handled you know what was used for sound equipment you know and then colby bartine handled what was needed for editing equipment, you know, and he sat with me there um, and figured that out uh, because it's just too much to think about. You know, I almost didn't want a hand in it right, at that right. point. I was ready to go, you know what, just do what needs to be done and, and there's got just within budget. Well, and there's got to be some element of uh, it being a top-down proposition, meaning... There's there's a certain like universe of, of issues you're worried about, mm-hmm. and then when it gets down to finer details, some things need to be delegated. 
and I never you can't do every you just can't do yeah I never understood that because and before I did yes your time because it got to a point where I thought Jesus Christ man I really just want to direct I just want to direct and I had to act in uh, almost every day I had to act one day I didn't have to act so actually the full shoot was 28 days right um And I thought, man, the next film that I make, which will be uh, Last Time I Saw You Blessed, that I'm just directing. I'm not going to act in it. And, right. I, and, and I do want to delegate. And I just, I really just want to direct. <laughs> I've written the script. I'll probably do some of the music for it, the score music, which right. I did with Yes, You're Tied. Um, but uh, it would feel nice to just be behind the camera and just studying that aspect of it. Because that's what really interests me about filmmaking. I'd act in someone else's film. There you go. But I'm not going to direct. I just well, want to act. And it's it's a little bit like um, I I would think I'm not an actor, but it, you know the kinds of bands that I, I play in are sort of like larger ensembles where we don't have a conductor, but somebody's watching the lead trumpet player for cues or me or, or whoever. So to I just want to play the chart. I just want to play the music uh-huh. and not worry if the guitarist knows that the solo is on the first time around on the A section and then it's I don't really want to have to worry about that I can't think I can't imagine though of you know trying to act in a scene and convey you know a certain uh, you know sensibility about the scene and also worry about all this other technical stuff that's going on around you and not and act like you're not Concerned. Concerned oh, yeah. about paying attention, even though you are. It's a very schizophrenic kind of kind of thing where you have to really do two things at once. You do. And, you know, it's every morning would consider... Well, the night before a shoot, Chris Black would make me and Bob Stewart go into a room, Bob Stewart being the cinematographer, and we'd go over our shot list for the next day. As soon as we, as soon as we wrapped for the day after 10, 12 hours. And then... I would have to somehow find time to rehearse my lines for the next day and have a couple of beers because that was always like a ritual afterwards. And somehow the crew would stay up half the night downstairs playing cards. I don't know how they did that. And they get up and shoot the next morning. But uh, so how it works when you're directing your own film is you talk to whatever actor you're doing the scene with, you do your lines and you shoot a couple of takes, and then you go back behind to Video Village and look at your t- footage and go, I'm terrible. He or she is terrible. We there's, have to do this another some, there's some self, million times. There's some self-loathing involved. Yeah, in. there is. There is. And you, and, and you never want to hear fix it in post, because I think that that's a real bullshit phrase. I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast. Of or course not, you can. You it can is. It's a horrible thing to hear. You want. So I would, I would not... When somebody says fix it in post, don't listen to them. Do another couple of takes. That phrase, that phrase is a dirty phrase in, in music and it is. film. And, that stinks. And photography, too. Oh, yeah. Like from it's a bummer. From uh, being involved as an observer in in some uh, like commercial photo shoots for a, a marketing company that I was helping, um, uh, you'd hear people say that. It well, well the, the angle wasn't right or the, <laughs> the dog was looking the wrong way. Or, don't worry, we'll fix it. Yeah, we'll put yeah. a digital face on the yeah, dog. Yeah, we're going to turn the dog's we don't head. Want, we don't actually want to get our hands dirty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's... Uh, yeah, it's harder to get it right yeah. and, and while you're in it, you know. I feel like I didn't answer your question, though, but like how long it took. It took six months of, I guess, pre-production mm-hmm. and then a month to shoot 
approximately, and then a full year of editing that I did with Colby Bartine, right. and that included sound editing, doing the score music with Rich Degnars. I recorded that Collingwood record, the Yes, Tide soundtrack, with Rich Degnars on drums, right. and then I just played all the other instruments, like the guitars, and, and then I brought in a couple of, or my friend Gina Degnars sung on it, and my friend Jessica Gray sung on it. And there were various musicians on there who contributed and helped me help me out. And, and some, go ahead. And well, and the soundtrack is you know by itself a massive undertaking. You know, it just struck me as you were describing all of that. I didn't really can. I didn't really think. Geez, you're making a movie and you're making a record, and uh-huh. they're the same thing, but they're totally different uh, propositions at the same time. Yeah. So you're in this in this thing for two years. Yeah, it was two years. It was definitely two years because and then mixing the record with Rich and Rich Rich has a really good sense of what I'm looking for and he again he kept me in line, which was awesome. Um there's also color timing for films. We had to color time. That was another week process, which is not a, a hell of a lot of time, but right. that was done in Philadelphia. Philadelphia Post or Philly Post did the sound editing. That was John Baker again. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that was done within a two-year... Well, let's see. Yeah, about a two-year period, I guess. I mean, this is <laughs> like the... I think I would refer to this as like the ultimate endurance sport, you know. Uh, yeah. Like you know, a half marathon or a marathon's one thing, but you know, can you gut this out for two years? Yeah. And it's a lot of time for um a lot of time to doubt yourself, like am I on the right track? Why you know, I'm sure at no matter how um you know, no matter how uh certain you are or how um, kind of possessed you are about the vision of the film at some point you have to wonder how did I get how did I get here or why am I doing this must have crossed your mind once or twice I, I, I would think during that time period it's it's it got certain scenes when we were trying to edit certain scenes together this is a good editor can really clean things up for you. And I don't mean just like on a technical level, Mm -hmm. but clean up meaning they have a better eye than you do. Like I, I feel like I'm an insurance director and like I can make all of the right decisions and I'm omnipotent and I'm just the guide for everything. And then you sit down with someone like Colby Bartine, the guy who edited this piece. I mean, I sat next to him, but Mm -hmm. Colby made some awesome decisions that actually he was the editor. I'm not the editor. You know, I was there kind of sitting there going, okay, he knows what he's saying. He was like 24, 25 at the time right. and doing all this work. So to answer your question about that, things that I would doubt, he would clean up and I would go, buddy, how did you, how did you fix that? I don't get it. I don't get it. He would go like, oh. He also was a diligent worker. Like he always wanted to work. Same with Rich Dagnars. They never want to stop working. Where I just kind of wanted to go watch a movie and have wine. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I think we've we've had a a, a heck of a crash course in indie film today. Um, what's What's next? What's what's coming up for you? Uh, and speaking of patrons, we're, we're looking for more of them. But um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact, if you go to well, I'll, I'll keep people updated on the MyatonFilmWorks.com 
myatinfilmworks.com. I'll keep people updated on what the next project is, but okay. it's called... And, the, we'll, and we'll link to that on the, uh, on the show okay. page. Uh, it's called The Last Time I Saw You Blessed. Um, and, and I won't say much more other than that it's about a female runner. A teenage runner um, who steps into some some dark situations. Um, And it's one of the producers is Greg Tagani, who starred as Jack in Yes, Your Tide is Cold and Dark, Sir. Um, And right now we're just in the in the in the financing period, which is kind of pre-production esque. Ready to do Uh, it. Yeah, ready ready to do it all over again. The script has been written. Uh, A company in New York has the script now. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but uh, right now it's just us, you know, and I know pretty much that Evangeline Young from the first film is probably going to be involved. Um, A great actress. And of course, Greg Tagani, but that's, that's where we are right now. Just, Ready to start the next feature, which will probably be you know two years with with some but. with some rock like songs with some rock like songs. Well, I say just... that and I say that with affection <laughs> because I know like people have asked me what your what the Collingwood your band is like, and I say well I don't, I think it's like kind of like Roxy Music meets like Iron Maiden or something <laughs> where there's a lot of like twin acts attack moments <laughs> with these interweaving lines. But it's done in a very, uh, very kind of like stylish way. It's its own thing. It's not. It is a rock band, but it's not. It's not a progressive band. It kind of is, though. I don't know. I. I you have to. You, you'll hear the the two tracks on the front and the back of the podcast today um, are from the film soundtrack, and you guys can decide for yourselves, but... Uh, and fairly, I should say that those songs were actually, you know, I'd written the score for the music, and then I essentially turned the score music into rock songs, um, as because I wanted to release kind of a rock side of things, but in the film, not pretty much scored. Music. No rock opera, which is... No rock no opera. No rock opera. We should do, you should do one of those. I might. Yeah. Based on my hair. Based on, yeah, based on your hair and, you know, we can have Jamie Baruch, our mutual friend, berating people. Yes. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, you should have asked him Do you something. think I could direct him? No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do a movie. Who told you I'd be in a movie? Uh, Chris, thanks so much for uh, absolutely. For Thank you. Us. Thanks for thanks for helping me. Trying this to, is a big help. Cool man. Trying to spread the word. This episode was recorded outside the studio, live on location. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization, for public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's t-u-k-law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.